Welcome to episode 15 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet. I'm currently a regular writer on women and the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. Uh, before we dive into the episode, um, got a little bit of housekeeping to do. Um, by the time this episode drops, we will have published the first essay in our blog series about technology, feminism, and libraries. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be sharing three more essays that are all about uh, information technology and the library and all that good stuff. Uh, so be sure to check those out, and I hope you all enjoy our little end-of-year library extravaganza. And uh, I also want to thank everyone who's been tweeting their support and comments about the show. We don't advertise the show anywhere, so every time you spread the word, you help us get new listeners. So if you do like the show, we want to ask that you please rate and review us on iTunes. Um, that really helps us uh, get bumped up on iTunes, whatever algorithm that they've got going on. Um, and so from now until the January episode, if you review us on iTunes, you'll be entered into a raffle to win a Lady Science tote bag with the logo of your choice. We have the oil lamp logo and the burning bra logo, and you can see both of those on our website donation page at ladyscience.com slash donate. Um, we'll announce the winner on the January episode. We did this back in the, in the spring, I think. Um, so yeah. we'll do it like that. We'll just announce it, uh, on the episode. So you'll have actually have to listen into the January episode to know if you won. <laughs> um, but anyway, yes, please, please, uh, get to your listening device and, um, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts and then also review us and rate us on iTunes, please. Yay. Uh, so, on to the episode. Uh, today, we're going to talk about brains. Okay, but for real, uh, we're specifically today exploring the study of male and female brains. Please imagine my air quotes. Uh, and the sexual science uh, that just won't die. Uh, so, scientists have been studying this idea of male and female brains for centuries. Uh, for whatever reason, researchers just keep coming back to it and trying to show, once and for all, that women are inferior to men. Uh, so we were interested in dedicating an episode to this topic after Cambridge recently published a study that claims they have shown that male and female brains are inherently different. Um, the study is called uh, Testing the Empathizing Systematizing Theory of Sex Differences in the Extreme Brain Theory of Autism in Half a Million People, um, and it looks into the demographic variables in people with autism, um, including sex, and they conclude that, quote, females on average are more empathetic 
typical males on average are more systems-oriented, and autistic people on average show a, quote, masculinized profile, and that this study, quote, underscores the importance of brain types in autism. So, uh, as Dean Burnett points out in his critique of the article, and we'll post that in the show notes, the study didn't actually look at any brains. They instead collected all the data through questionnaires, largely made up of agree-disagree type questions, which already that sets up a binary framework that influences the data collection um, from the get and the interpretation of that data. So, of course, this this type of study is, is really nothing new. Um, historically, scientists have used various tools and methods to search for biological differences in the brain between men and women. So before we, you know, spend some time talking about current research, we're going to talk about the history. So we're going to start with the our good friends, the Victorians in the 19th century. And there's something that uh, me and Anna have always joked about that, like, we didn't really have to guess what the Victorians were thinking because they wrote it all down. So <laughs> we didn't have to really guess that Victorians hated women because they wrote it down. So um, we don't really have to do a lot of theorizing or cultural analysis here. Um so I do want to note, though, that uh, studying the inherent differences between men and women didn't actually start with the Victorians. Uh, since ancient times, natural philosophers, phys physicians, and men of science in the West had been looking for sex differences that manifested in the body. But what sets the Victorians apart is that they were looking for it in the mind as well. So in the 19th century, women started to become uh, increasingly disrupted making unreasonable demands for things like access to higher education and voting and just going out Wearing of doors pants, more generally. Riding bicycles. <laughs> bikes. <laughs> um, so women began organizing around these demands for rights and could no longer be ignored. So for men of science, women who stepped outside of their accepted gender roles threatened the natural order of things. And many saw it as their job as scientists uh, to investigate this phenomenon. Men of science of all stripes, biologists, anthropologists, anatomists, psychologists, and physicians all took up this study. Paul Broca, the Fren French anthropologist for whom Broca's area of the brain is named, said that women's disruption to the social order, quote, necessarily induced a perturbation in the evolution of races, and hence it follows that the condition of women in society must be carefully studied by the anthropologist, end quote. <laughs> So the thinking went that if scientists could prove that women's inferiority was based in biology, they could justify women's exclusion from the public sphere and their continued subjugation. But I guess, you know, what that means is that if, if you don't keep your women in line, the entire humanity will be irrevocably degraded and will not reach its evolutionary yeah. potential. Yeah, yeah, like basically like... That this is the problem. This is a problem for the scientist because women have <laughs> the potential to disrupt the entire way of life, like the entire natural order of like our ecosystem. <laughs> they weren't using the term ecosystem, obviously, but but yeah, that's that's the main idea. I also enjoy the sort of must um, must be most carefully studied by the anthropologist because it makes studying sound kind of threatening. Which it, you know, 
often is. Yeah, and it certainly (laughs) was in this case. (laughs) Right, exactly. So on that note, um, what scientists started studying in particular, um, among other things, but we're focusing on here, is the size of people's brains. They became kind of obsessed with it. Uh, If you've heard of craniology, uh, that's basically what um, we're talking about here. Uh, Historian Cynthia Eagle Russett wrote in her book, Sexual Science, the Victorian Construction of Womanhood, that, quote, By far the greatest amount of ink and the largest number of pages in the literature were devoted to measuring the brain in the firm belief that bigger was better. End quote. And... By the way, of course that's what they believed. (laughs) I was going to make a dick joke. (laughs) Go on. It's right there, yeah. Insert dick joke here. That was... Anyway. Um, The prevailing belief was that since on average, um, quite helpfully and coincidentally, of course, male skulls were larger than female skulls, and male brains were heavier than female brains, that men were naturally inclined to divide, to develop higher intelligence than women. So, in fact, Paul Broca, who had accumulated the largest collection of male and female skulls in Europe, which I feel like I need to know more about how that happened, um, <laughs> he wrote that, quote, Other things being equal, there is a remarkable relationship between the development of intelligence and the volume of the brain. End quote. This argument on intelligence was particularly useful in keeping women out of higher education and preserving it as an all-male institution. So I will point out that the skulls that um, anthropologists and anatomists were collecting were um, most likely from, like, long, long dead people. So they weren't even conducting their experiments, uh, quote-unquote experiments, on living human beings. So Right. <laughs> so in addition to gender, craniology was also applied in the often overlapping care, uh, categories of race, class, and criminality. Um, so that those who subscribed to craniology believed that all of these things left empirical and de- definitive traces on the brain. And in fact, scientists believed that the issues of race and sex were intricately connected, that white women shared more physiologically with black people than they did with the white European man. So German biologist Karl Voigt wrote that, quote, the female skull resembles much more the Negro skull than that of the European man, end quote. So on an evolutionary hierarchy, um, both black people and women occupied the lower rungs closer to animals, and then white men are at the top. And um, and convenient, indeed, (laughs) uh, in Descent of Man, uh, Chaboy Darwin voiced this comparison, uh, (laughs) saying that, quote, it is at least probable from the analogy of the lower animals which present other secondary characteristics uh good old darwin always there to i don't know affirm some racist theories about brains yeah uh, it's really amazing that the high regard in which we still hold this man and again he wrote all of this down (laughs) and like it's still like he's he's science god like it's 
it's still that we still get these laudatory glorifying profiles of him all of the time without any critical mention of these things that he used his science to do to people like Jesus Christ. So (laughs) even if scientifically the oppression of black people and white women were connected, their liberation was not. In the late 1890s to 1902, mathematician and eugenicist Alice Lee investigated intelligence and sex difference and published uh, her study titled A Study of the Correlation of the Human Skull, and she showed conclusively that cranial capacity had no relation to intelligence and gender. So I do want to uh, tell how she did this study. So she, so up until this point, um, a lot of the uh, quote-unquote studies and uh, quote-unquote experiments involved taking these skulls of people who were dead and, like, filling them with stuff and, like, uh, what they were filling it with changed from person to person. So they could be filling it with um, a, a liquid. They could be filling it with a solid. So all of these things that when you actually weigh them, the, the, it changes, um, so and, uh, the, the like irregular objects like seed pods or like peppercorns, things like yes. that, that were not like, um, that could pack yeah. differently. Like if you filled the same thing twice, it would pack differently. Right. So, you know. Yeah. So like they, some of them were using like, uh, like buckwheat, uh, rice, all of these things. That, yeah. When you put them in there, they're, they fill <laughs> differently. Very precise. Guys, so, you're blowing my mind. I did not even oh, know yeah. this. Oh my yeah. God. So, uh, you know, the results were, as you would expect from these types of, uh, you know, rigorous scientific studies, uh, wildly imprecise. Um, and so what Alice Lee did was she devised, she was a statistician, uh, first of all. And so she created a formula to measure the skulls of living people. And so what she did, she went to um, the gentleman over at the Society for Anatomists or whatever they were called and asked to measure their skulls. And they were like, sure, confident, I guess, in their uh, large skulls. Uh, (laughs) And she compared their size using her formula to that of women at Bedford College. And not only were some of these men having wildly, like, unremarkable sized skulls, some of the men who were kind of the most renowned anatomists at the time had smaller skulls than the women at the college. So her study, you know, showed that these things don't don't correlate at all. Um, so there were attacks on craniology uh, before Alice Lee, but uh, what Russett says in her book is that this was kind of the most, like, uh, sophisticated uh, actual rigorous investigation of that idea. So, um, so while she was, did show that this had no, uh, cranial capacity, had no relation to intelligence and gender, she did, however, continue to study the craniological and biometrical difference between non-white people and white Europeans. So while she worked to overturn beliefs that disenfranchised women, she used that same work and the same tools to uphold the same ones that justified the colonization and enslavement of non-white people. And it wouldn't be until 1909 that race would get the same treatment. Franklin Mall expanded Lee's methods to include studies of the frontal lobe and fissures on the brain, not just the actual uh, cranial size, and expanded her scope to include race. And he ultimately concluded 
that neither gender nor race left empirical impressions on the brain. So I guess that's it then. We put it all to bed in 1909. <laughs> sure. And just, yeah, thanks thanks for yeah. listening today, everybody. <laughs> we did it. We're done. We did it. We solved all the things. Um, before we do go on, I just got I mean, this is nothing that we don't all know, but sometimes it's like, white supremacy is a hell of a drug. It's just like so many white women who put so much, who like read all this stuff that white men create saying uh, white women and all black people are all inferior instead of saying, no, we're not inferior. Say, no, we're more like the white men and less like the black people because God forbid we just lift everyone up. Right. Yeah, and I think, it, again, it's yeah. important to say also that, like, uh, these theories that are being constructed in the 19th century, they're not, they are not the engine that generated this, like, uh, sexual and racial hierarchy. That already existed. So what they're doing is right, right. doing these experiments to confirm they're already, like, accepted social view of the world, which is that black people are at the bottom of the hierarchy and white people are at the top. Uh, and it's all part of the great chain of being. And that's how it's like the entire cosmology of how, you know, Western science understood the world at this point. Right. Yeah. 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 And these tools that she's using, these ideas of, of measurement, uh, like bio biometry and craniology, like, whether she was able to use those tools against craniologists, yes. But also, those tools are inherently eugenicist. Like, right. those those were created by eugenicists, used to eugenicist means. Um, right. <laughs> that's that's what they were there for. Yeah, and it's and it's not like she's saying measuring brains is stupid. She's saying, oh, it just it's it's that that it you are measuring them incorrectly, and I have <laughs> measured them better. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to prove my point. <laughs> yeah exactly <sighs> okay well we we talked about um at the top of the um the section we talked about um a study that was published recently um that i think has been well and truly debunked and as i said we linked to a particular critique of that another thing that um you should read is angela saney's book inferior um which is about how science has classified women as inferior in various ways using bad bunk science. Um, and so I, I kind of leave it to her to do that debunking. But what I wanted to talk about in terms of these ideas, uh, spoiler alert, we didn't put them to bed in 1909. They're still here. They're everywhere. Well, oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, thought we were going to wrap this up in a 20 minute episode <laughs> uh, I wanted to talk about um, less about the content of those ideas because they're bad and wrong um, and more about how they kind of um, how they kind of sneak into our discourse and our public consciousness um, sometimes they are uh, forcefully injected into our public uh, conversation by people like that dude from Google who wrote a really long memo uh, about how women 
uh, don't have the proper brains to work at Google. As we said, because there's like this other study about autism, it seems like there's always somebody willing to spend their grant money on a poorly designed study to prove once and for all that lady brains are inferior. And then um, Google dude can, um, you know, dig that up and dust it off and try to get uh, all the women off of his team at Google. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about how these ideas, how we see them kind of like circulating around and infecting uh, our day-to-day -day conversations about, you know, sex and gender and work and things like that. So a really good example of this is a recent opinion piece from the Wall Street Journal called Sorry Feminists, Men Are Better at Scrabble. Uh, which argues that because there are no women in high-level competitive Scrabble, side note, I didn't know until I saw this article that there was high-level competitive Scrabble. Um, but anyway, the point being, since there are no women there, men must be better at it. And obviously, according to this article, their absence can't be due to social barriers to entry because supposedly there aren't any. Uh... This is supposed to be proof that men's, men's and women's brains are wired differently, and we just succeed at different tasks. So that's not anyone's fault. It's certainly not sexism. It's our brains are just different. Uh, I don't know why I keep seeing brains in a wacky voice, but it just seems appropriate to this <laughs> well, situation. Well, now you have to keep doing it for the rest of the episode. <laughs> uh, so I'd like to point out also, and this kind of gets to Anna's point, that we're not really talking about science at all. Uh, this article isn't citing any studies or anything like that. Uh, not even any like weird studies of the volume of a brain. Uh, they're just sort of these half-realized observations which can sort of be made to confirm something the author already believes. Um, and there's no further empirical examination. Uh, and yes, yes, okay, so this has been placed in the opinion section rather than as a reported feature. Uh, but he's still stating some things as though they are just, like, obvious. Uh, this sort of vague idea that the science exists is often enough evidence for people to make crazy claims like this one. Uh, so we're not even really dealing with scientific research itself, but, like the idea of the scientific research. Yeah. Uh, also, that was a woman. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> I wrote that oh. piece. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, yes. Let's assume it's a man because, sure. <laughs> right. But, right. But, yeah, like, it's it's super disappointing that, yeah. you know, that was written by yeah. by a woman. Uh, and Good I, reminder like, that women can be terrible, too. <laughs> One of the things that this article uh, was said was that they called it, she called it a, quote, natural experiment. Yep. As if it was like looking, right. watching yes. people out in the wild, like, you know, watching some lion's <laughs> mate or something. Uh, yeah. Like, but it's it, like, it's not a natural experiment. Like, it's, it's an you coming to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. and like, you coming to a situation with a certain lens, looking at a situation that has been cultivated by norms, that's not natural. Like, right. it's just not. And 
actually. Oh, I do I do want to come okay. back to the point about um a natural experiment um as one of the ways that um science gets kind of like weaponized to like uh ensure that we're still talking about these ideas. Um you like it betrays, I think, first of all, like a pretty serious misunderstanding of both like how modern like research neurology works and also how the social sciences work um, in that uh, you like even even our boy Darwin didn't just like go to the Galapagos and like look at a finch like that's not the extent of like an experiment so there's definitely this like you're kind of weaponizing the rhetoric of science with like no understanding of like anything coming close to like a methodology or like how science you know, it's supposed to even control for things at all. Like, you can't just, like, waltz out into your yard and, like, I don't know, look at some grass and then draw some conclusions about the biology of grass. Like, there's just mo- there's just more to it than that. But by calling it a yeah. natural experiment, I think what the author is saying is, here's this thing that we all kind of already believe, right? Like, we all believe that... Right that men are better at this kind of thing and that and that their brains are different than women brains. Look look at look at Scrabble. It's happening right in front of your faces. It's variating. Also, I just can't I cannot imagine if there are really no women at in competitive Scrabble, can you imagine trying to get into competitive Scrabble and being in a room with like 40 men whose sole passion in life is competitive Scrabble? Sorry, but... Yeah, and I think another example of, like, a natural experiment that she used was Wikipedia, the gender disparity of uh, male versus female entries for people on on Wikipedia, which, like, I don't know, that just... Just do, like, a simple, like, internet search to find tons of articles that have actually studied and have actual, like... Data, I know that we always say data is a neutral, but at least they have something to yeah. back up that these aren't because women are less than men. It's about the like how content creation and is gendered and how uh, history is gendered. And that's why these disparities and exist. And also that Not- the like Wikipedia editing community is, is like generally very hostile to women. And is mostly male dominated, and that like yeah. if you like, I've read about women who tried to edit Wikipedia pages and just got mired in like horrible like flame wars in the like back end chat about changing things because who you know some dude who wrote the page didn't want anybody to change his Wikipedia page like <laughs> exactly what you said, Layla. Yeah. There's information yeah. about exactly why this happens and you know what i bet there's some studies about competitive scrabble as well but why do we need to do that when we can just say things like it's a natural experiment and we're all citizen scientists going out in the world (laughs) and learning about brains yeah it 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 goes to show sort of how how powerful just using the word science or experiment or science experiment is <laughs> like just the wall street journal is is 
not the best publication in the world by a long shot, and is the known Wall for Street Journal. conservatism. <laughs> it's the Wall Street Journal. But also, it's the Wall Street Journal. Like, they're legit. They're not some, like, weirdo, fly-by-night internet. Bipart. Yeah, presumably Flog. they have an opinion exactly. editor who read that, that piece at some point. Exactly. <laughs> And there was something along the way where someone was just, like, either consciously or subconsciously, was like, yeah, yes, science! Science shows a thing. Let's put it in there. And, like, if they hadn't... And, of course, it's also perfect for something like the Wall Street Journal, which itself is very, like, serious and, like, empirical and all of these things. Um... If the argument had, had like, been the same but hadn't, like, gestured towards science, it probably would have had a slightly different reception. Yeah. Uh, But, or someone would have said, or maybe someone did, say, hey, maybe you should put some science references in here to make it seem more, like, logical. And it just goes to show how, again, how science can be weaponized. And it's, it's... It's such a powerful idea that we don't even need a science experiment that they're talking about. We can just say, this is science-y, and then suddenly it becomes reality. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, what you said about the Wall Street Journal, like, we see that as, like, a serious publication. So I think there's, like, some built-in understanding there that there was an editor who did look at that and did, I don't know, fact-checked something and was like, yeah, this is great, and, like... The, the voice of the newspaper isn't made to stand in for, you know, evidence <laughs> by just saying, right. oh, the Wall Street Journal right. published it, so it's probably legit. Right. Okay. Okay, so, like, another way that I was thinking about how these ideas are kind of allowed to slip into the discourse is just by repeated appeals to the discourse itself and by arguing that if you don't discuss this science which we've already shown that people do discuss this Angelini wrote a whole book about it like it's not that people aren't talking about this but there is this argument that like you're somehow if you refuse to debate me about lady brains that you're damaging the you know, a precious culture of open debate that we've cultivated in this country or whatever. And this is the argument that is used by James Damore, 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 uh, and his supporters when he published his stupid memo about um, how women aren't good at coding and diversity is dangerous and all of that stuff. Um, there's just so a lot of pearl clutching about um, Google firing him as it... Um, their refusal to engage with controversial ideas and how that has a chilling effect on free speech. Uh, and that if we're not even allowed to talk about these ideas, then we live in a, you know, social justice warrior police state or whatever. So the like debate me thing is another way where you're just like, you're forced to, you know, air out these uh, scientific theories and to bring them up over and over again. Right, and, like, one of the things about him being fired is that the way that that went down is, like, that he circulated it in Google's, like, back channel Google Plus social network, right? So this wasn't just something he was sharing with a guy or two around the office. He circulated it to the company, and 
if I was a woman at that company and there were many and I would have read that, that creates a hostile working environment. Right. That that creates a a feeling of being uh, uncomfortable and unsafe around this individual on a mass scale because lots of women read that. So, like, this whole thing about silencing free speech, he created a hostile work environment. You got to go. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I... It's like you, you you get this thing from, like, people who consider themselves more lefty, even, that it's like, well, we have to debate them to just, like, prove them wrong. Um, or, like, you kind of get, like, you know, uh, light and heat kill germs kind of metaphors. Uh, as, as though... As though history has shown in any way that, like, terrible people t- thinking terrible things and good people telling them they're wrong has, like, ever changed the course of history. Or, I mean, maybe not ever, but <laughs> but just, like, that's, that's not how it works. And especially when the question at hand is, like, does X human being have, like, value as a human being? Like... Being willing to argue the question is already seeding a certain amount of, like, this is a question worth arguing. This is something that right. you could be right. <laughs> but Well, and also, like, this idea of uh, with uh, Daymore and the stuff we were talking about with the Victorians is, like, when we're questioning an entire group's intelligence, that, in a way, stands in for their humanity, Because we tie so much value as a society to intelligence, uh, that we see intelligence as being a higher form of being, a higher form of uh, interacting. Um, And when you can say that entire groups and communities of people inherently don't hold intelligence, you are dehumanizing them. And we know what happens when you dehumanize women. That leads to all sorts of things. Violence. Gender-based violence. Like, these, this isn't something that is just insulated to getting a job or getting into college. Or it, it has all of these other ramifications that go beyond just, you know, getting that job or getting that diploma. Yeah, I think, uh, I think if anything, we should be spending more time talking about whether conducting this research in the first place is ethical. Like, whether posing this question at all is ethical, rather than, you know, discussing these, you know, shitty studies in public, whatever. But, like, we shouldn't be paying for them. We shouldn't be doing them at all. Like, like you said, Rebecca, posing the question at all and and saying that it's something that is, uh, that we should be debating uh, is monstrous. Like, that's insane. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I did want to point out that I saw from, uh, like, a week ago... um, you guys know Notch, the Minecraft dude? The he goes he goes no. by the handle Notch. He's the founder of Minecraft. He he's a terrible he oh my god, he's terrible. Um uh, but he posted six days ago, lest you think we have done away. Uh <sighs> he posted, quote, on Twitter, uh, quote, if we were allowed to discuss IQ differences between populations, there'd be fewer conspiracy theories. 
So this idea that, like, if we don't have the discourse, like, it's going to somehow, like, corrupt our society in various ways, either by stifling free speech or apparently by encouraging conspiracy theory. Right. So, good, good. I I love also, if we were allowed to, like, who is preventing you from doing anything, my dude? Come on. Right, right. There, there seem to be, unfortunately, a lot of people discussing the idea of IQ differences among groups of people. Yeah, it's a real bummer. Many of them. If only we had actually had the chilling effect that these people think we have on them. You know, we being feminists and, know. and like leftists yes. or whatever. I, that would be God, great. if we had the power that, that some people think we do, we'd live yeah. in a magical world. Yeah, and like... So, like, once all of these ideas make it into the mainstream and we've all been, I guess, brainwashed and bullied into believing that we need to give them airtime in order to preserve our crumbling democracy or whatever, I don't know, whatever the Quillette is publishing these days about us, um, we're then confronted with anti-feminist arguments about these ideas. And uh, if you want to advocate for women, they say you need to take this biological difference into account in order to level the playing field. Don't you want to integrate women into male-dominated fields? Um, And you'll never be able to unless you account for this difference. Um, And as the argument goes, and because of that, your efforts are just punishing men. So I think as much as people like to claim that women and minorities play victim cards all the time, I mean... (laughs) 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 i mean these guys fill their diapers over everything (laughs) yeah and it's just um this this idea so i kind of want to differentiate because like so we've talked about a lot on this podcast about how um medicine doesn't take into account women and women's bodies and non-male bodies and how they don't account for human difference. And we've said that a lot and we totally believe that, (laughs) that the, that the medical establishment does not take non-male bodies, non-cis male bodies into account. And that women and uh, people of color must be uh, integrated more into scientific research and stuff like that. But we're not saying that because we're arguing that there are inherent, measurable, empirical differences of inferiority uh, between white men and black people or women and black people. But we have pathology that manifests differently based on biology, based on culture, based on things like nutrition that are socially and culturally constructed and not all of it always comes back to well because black people manifest uh inherently manifest tuberculosis and white people don't (laughs) that i just want to make sure that that's clear that that's not what we're saying when we talk about um the medical establishment not accounting for human difference yeah i think the maybe the like important takeaway there is that like um Science and medicine can account for differences between different people. Um, 
but science and medicine have no place then putting those people into some kind of hierarchy uh, that de- that uh, determines who is more or less human based on, uh, you know, differences that might occur. And like Leo said, a lot of the differences that we observe between, like, men and women or between um, people of different races is uh, is cultural and is actually a consequence of that hierarchy, not proof of it. Yeah, it's complicated okay. and, like, <laughs> good to highlight. Yeah. yeah, and it is complicated, okay. and I think that's one of the things that we talk about uh, so much on the show, uh, in the magazine, just between ourselves, is that, like, yeah. understanding all of the sort of social and cultural dimensions of this, like, that's that's what history yes. of science gave me, was to, like, yeah. you know, tools to kind of grapple with that complexity, instead of instead of just succumbing to a hierarchy because it's easy, you know? To, like, fully understand that. But, uh, I don't know. It kind of seems to me that, like, at least people who are still, you know, proposing and carrying out these kind of research studies are either just, like, so sort of inculcated in this idea um, that they feel like, you know, that it's sort of unconscious that they would, you know, want to pursue something like this. Or that, like you know, we are always looking for, like, a clean answer, a clean sort of piece of data that will, like, uh, tell us once and for all, you know, something about ourselves as humans, as opposed to it's really messy and complicated. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And also, like, I want to know, like, now, I understand what the Victorians were thinking by proving this difference between men and women and Black people and white people, because they wrote it down. So I want to know now if they can find the smoking gun that says this is the thing that irrevocably proves that women are different in this way than men and it makes them less than. What are they going to do with that? What's the point of knowing that? Like, what are you going to do with that information, my dude? Yeah. Like, I know what it will do, but they're not accepting that that's the end game. Yeah. Or admitting, I guess. Admitting, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Because, hey, we're just asking questions. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (sighs) Yeah. I don't know. That gave me weird chills. Just the way that you put it about, like, the end game of something like that. And that, like, we are not, you know, uh, God bless them. The Victorians were explicit about what they wanted to do, which was, you know, colonize a bunch of people and take all of their resources. Um, And they needed the science to tell them that, um, they were they were doing God's plan because the, you know, brown people couldn't take care of themselves. But you're right. We don't talk about what is the end result of this information. Um, yeah. And we know what it was used for, you know, in the past. So what are we supposed to expect now? Man, that's, yeah. uh, that's really upsetting. <laughs> yeah, it is. Sorry, but, but guys. It's a, but it's a, really, it's a really good point because... Um, people get buried in their intellectual exercises about, like, just asking questions. And, like, questions have consequences. And deciding that some people are inferior to others has serious consequences. And you can't say, well, I'm the civilized scientist in the lab who would never do physical harm to people if what you're doing is in some ways encouraging physical harm to come to other people. 
think mm-hmm. it's like this incredible, um, I guess it's cognitive dissonance or just this like amazing walling off of the I'm just asking questions like blue sky science approach to things. So much so that like you're you're now I you're <laughs> I don't know, right? So we all agree that like um Nazi medicine was like oh real bad, like super bad. Right. Uh <laughs> but like I said earlier, we ha- we still it's 2018 and we haven't come to the conclusion that um, doing science to determine whether or not uh, women are inferior beings isn't unethical. What right. are we doing, guys? <laughs> oh man, I'm really I'm going down the rabbit hole. Oh dear. All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's go. Let's tra- <laughs> let's transition into our last thing because we're gonna do something a little bit different. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Feel better now. Yay! Uh, so typically, at the end of the show, we would talk about an annoying thing in the news that has been bugging us, and it has kind of transitioned from annoying to horrifying in the last couple of years. Well, it's only been a year that we've been doing the podcast, but <laughs> in the past year, many much of the news has has transitioned from annoying to. Exactly. And so we were trying to come up with one today, and I just, I couldn't do it. And everything is already very dreary and uh, very annoying and horrifying. And so we wanted to just kind of end on a lighter mood. And we are each going to talk about one just delightful thing that is helping us get through the dark times. And as I have already said, the dark times are, they are among us. That tweet from Notch was posted (laughs) six days ago, so... Uh, let's talk about things that are delightful and are making us feel good. Whoever wants to go first. Do you want to go first? I'll go first. Uh, So my one delightful thing is Blair Braverman and her dogs. Blair Braverman is a dog musher. She's a dog sled racer. And she raises uh, sled dogs. I almost said she raises dog sleds. I don't know if you, like, grow them or <laughs> what. Um, and she posts about all her Avengers doing all of this on Twitter. And it's just, it's delightful. So she she and her husband and their um, handler are in Alaska right now training for the Iditarod, which is so cool. Um, that'll be her first year doing the Iditarod. She just qualified this year. And... She's just been posting all this really interesting stuff about a sport I didn't know anything about except for having seen Balto when I was a kid, <laughs> uh, which is a good movie. Uh, I really feel for those kids who needed their medicine. Um, but that's the, that's, that is about the Iditarod. Like that's, it, it is the same course of that um, dog sled run to get the medicine to the kids in Nome. Um, and it's a thousand miles. But anyway, she just, she posts all this stuff and she posts these great, like, really long threads that she does as, like, bedtime stories. So she'll pick something that happened in the last couple of days and she takes lots of pictures. Um, And so for an example, the most recent one is about um, one of her dogs, um, uh, Boudica, came back from a run and was, like, moving really weird. And so she was, like, really worried that she had gotten hurt or that she was sick or something. So she asked one of the other mushers to look at the dog. And he said uh, that she had probably pulled a muscle or jammed her shoulder or something like that. And all through the thread, 
uh, she's saying like, he moved her head back and forth and she gave him gentle kisses. <laughs> he <laughs> felt her tummy and she gave him gentle kisses. And just like, ugh, ugh, so delightful. Um, and Buika had to sleep in their tiny cabin and her and her handler were like sharing the bed, like sleeping like foot to head and they put Buddhika in the middle and they both like were like, okay, we're going to sleep. And Buddhika's a sled dog. She sleeps outside. She doesn't like to go inside. And so she didn't do so well. And so they were like, okay, turn the lights off. And then Buddhika just kept licking them like on their faces and their eyes and stuff. <laughs> and they had to like cover up with blankets. So she posts all these threads and like interesting stuff about um about the dogs and how they're trained and what they eat, which is lots of meat, uh, and about how they transport them and how the sleds work and the like how races are run and various ways they train the dogs. Just lots of really interesting detail and really like cheerful and upbeat and lots of cute pictures of dogs and puppies. And I don't know, it's just like a very bright spot in my timeline. And um, it seems like Blair seems like a really awesome person and her husband Q as well. And you can follow Blair on Twitter, it's at Blair Braverman. And they also have a Patreon. So if you want to help them kind of like, uh, sledding is really expensive. So you can help them buy, buy stuff for the dogs and buy the dog's french fries so she can take pictures of them eating french fries and then post them on Twitter. <laughs> But that's that's my recommendation to get through, you know, this long, long winter is follow Blair. Yes, I agree. I follow her as well. And I love all the pictures of the dogs. And I like when she has the pictures of the dogs talking to each other, like like that they're they have voices. And <laughs> it's really it's really adorable. It's it really is like it's very precious. Um, so my delightful thing is the Monopoly man <laughs> who keeps making appearances at congressional hearings <laughs> for <laughs> wealthy business owners. Um, so uh, Monopoly man is a protester by the name of Ian Madrigal, and they dress up like the Monopoly man, and they actually wear uh, a monocle and a mustache and a hat that has a get out of jail free card on it and sits behind like so that they can get in the shot of the camera behind these wealthy people and just makes like facial expressions the entire time they're talking and just kind of moves their head back and forth in and out of the camera frame. Um, and so they made an appearance at um, the Google CEO's Sundar uh, Pachi's hearing yesterday. And um, uh, at this one actually added the monocle and added the get out of jail free card to their hat. And I don't recommend like watching the videos of the Monopoly Man with the audio on. It's really just entertaining to watch them uh, respond throughout the entire filming. Um, and I just kind of love this type of protest. <laughs> it's very visual and it's very funny um, and it's very sharp. Um, in a way that, like, you can't, like, 
that's not a crime. You can't remove somebody <laughs> because they're dressed like the Monopoly man waving fake $100 bills around <laughs> behind you. Um, so that's kind of, that's my delightful thing. I love this person and there are just a lovely soul doing the Lord's work. I love that. And I love, uh, I like what you said about it being sharp. Like it's so simple yeah. and so effective because those pictures, like there's going to be hundreds of pictures and they're going to go all over the world. Like, oh, it's just, it's very clean, very well thought out. Yeah. Yep. Yes. <laughs> I do have to say every time you, when you were talking about that earlier today, every time you said Monopoly Man, I thought of Marlin's Man. Who's just this dude who wears like head to toe bright orange Marlins gear and apparently has access to a whole lot of money because he's always sitting like right behind home plate in Major League Baseball games all season long. <laughs> and he's like a real dick. Like he's an asshole. But so I just, he's like the opposite of Monopoly Man. <laughs> yeah. Everybody hates Marlins. So man. the opposite of a delightful thing to share yeah, oh, sorry. on the podcast. I'm just saying, I think that is his like, his alter ego is, is Marlins Man. Yeah. yeah. Is Marlin Man. <laughs> it's, it's like the mirror universe, Monopoly Man. <laughs> uh, so my delightful thing is a thing that is delighting the internet, nay, the world. Uh, and that is the adorable, charming, terrifying monster known as Gritty. <laughs> yes! Uh, for anyone who hasn't missed the um, the memo, Gritty is the new, um, fairly new mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, the Flyers are Philadelphia's hockey team, uh, and you have to if you haven't seen a picture of Gritty, just go Google Gritty. Uh, oh, I'll put them in the show notes. Um, excellent, perfect, <laughs> wonderful. The best description I've heard was from the podcast Reply All, which referred to it as a um, a mascot that people in prison would make out of other mascots. <laughs> um, which seems pretty accurate. Uh, he's giant and orange and has googly eyes, but he has come to represent everything great about Philadelphia in that he is both kind of terrifying, but also lovable. Uh, he, We've all decided that Gritty is a socialist, um, <laughs> like an angry old school working class socialist, because again, Philadelphia. Um, he falls down a lot. Uh, so he's not, like, great at what he's supposed to be doing, but he does it with enthusiasm. Uh, and at various points, um, there have been protests. There was, uh, a, um, a, there was, there was a Proud Boys, uh, demonstration a few Ugh. weeks ago at, in Philadelphia, um, in Old City, uh, right near the Liberty Bell, um, Turns out very, and like, it was one of those things where like the anti-protesters wildly overwhelmed the Proud Boys, which was beautiful, um, but there were also a lot of signs uh, that were basically like, Gritty uh, doesn't want racists in the ci our city, and uh, generally like, Gritty showed up to kick out the Proud Boys, and 
There has even been a proclamation by the Philadelphia City Council welcoming Gritty. Um, and in particular, it was signed by Councilwoman Helen Jim, who is generally known for being uh, pretty awesome and lefty and showing up at all of like the lefty protests and stuff. So I feel like that like sealed the deal in terms of, yes, Gritty is the Antifa um mascot as well as the flyers mascot uh that we all need <laughs> oh right and the flyers <laughs> i mean also the flyers i guess uh so that was fabulous also um we should put in the show notes um this week at the science history institute where i do social media um i got to post about the book tree that our wonderful brilliant librarians built in which they got every single orange book from the stacks and made a gritty tree and it's fabulous <laughs> uh, yes we'll definitely include that in the show notes so the uh so gritty has even come um become part of the science history institute and it is delightful I think the thing that I really like about Gritty, not living in Philadelphia, so I don't get the full Gritty experience, uh, is the eyes and the, like, unhinged, barely contained chaos behind Mm -hmm. them. Yep. And just, like, perfectly encompasses how I approach the world right now. Yeah. (laughs) So true. Yeah, if it it's it's really the eyes that make it. If they were like normal fake oh, eyes, yeah. no, it would just no, look you. like a large muppet, which Philadelphia already has one of those for and a it's sports terrifying. Mascot. I hate that guy. <laughs> it's dumb. The Philly fanatic is dumb. Um but the the eyes are really what make Gritty something special. Yeah, yeah. I think unhinged is is the right word. He's just like very close to the edge there. Yeah, and definitely just barely containing yeah, it. A huge upgrade on the fanatic. That I hate that thing. It oh has a God, weird yeah. tongue that comes out. I don't like it. <laughs> it's upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I guess we can go ahead and wrap up. It was nice to end on a delightful thing for it once was. instead of a of an annoying thing. Um. So if you liked our episode today, please, please, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. And don't forget that through uh, between this episode and the January episode, um, if you leave us a review, we will do a drawing and um, you have a chance to win a free Lady Science tote bag. If you have questions about our segments today, uh, you can tweet us at at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. And for show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadySciience.com. We are an independent magazine, and so we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit LadySciience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on social media, Facebook at at Lady Science Mag, and on Twitter and Instagram at at Lady X Science.